0: And welcome to the Lodgers Sorted Cinemas Twin Peaks podcast. My name is Simon Howell. I'm joined, as always, by Kate Renbaum.
1: Hello, everybody.
0: And we are extremely stoked to invite back to the podcast, uh, making a return of their own, if you will. It's Jessica Bardsley.
1: Hi. How
0: you doing, Jessica?
1: I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me back. We're excited. We're a little late this week uh, because it took some doing to coordinate all of our schedules, uh, but it was totally worth it to get uh, Jessica back. We are thrilled to have her back. Yay! It took so much planning to make this happen. <laughs> really, it was all just that we had incredibly boring things to do on various e- evening nights and just could not uh, coordinate, but that's okay. We're here now and we have an hour and a bit to talk about Twin Peaks, and really, what could be better than that? Nothing. <laughs>
0: Nothing. Absolutely nothing in the universe. So we are here to talk about part nine of The Return. Of course, the first sort of post... I call it a hiatus. It took a week off. It feels so much longer than that for some reason. Probably because of the nature of the last episode they they left us with. Um, Before we get into the particulars of this episode, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to people who have been leaving reviews, particularly on the US iTunes We have noticed you. We have appreciated your words of praise and and, and honor. Thank you very much. We always need and want more. As I I like to mention, there are so many, so many Twin Peaks podcasts. And as several reviewers have noted, uh, we are not among the worst of them, I think. (laughs) So, you know, consider taking a moment to rate and or, and the reviews are even better. Um, The more words and praise... And glory the better that's about it for now uh and i just wanted to also mention since i usually wait till the end to mention this that uh, the the podcast is on soundcloud now um and apparently you will get to keep using soundcloud thanks to chance the rapper not really sure how that works but i'm glad to hear that it won't be dying that's enough preamble for me so jessica uh, before we get to part nine i'm so curious uh to hear what your experience of the return in general has been so far
2: You know, I feel like my experience has... Yeah, so my overall feeling is like I am so happy about it. But I'm also like, you know, watching episode to episode is like super frustrating because I just feel like each episode ends and I'm like just still waiting. There's there's that aspect of the experience. Um, And also like, you know, I think at first a lot of surprise and I didn't read much about what was actually going to take place. Um, I know Kate was... Kate was surprised at how little I had um, researched the new the new series, and um, so yeah, so a lot of it for me was also like surprised, even you know at first realizing that it's set in so many different places, and um, and realizing you know that the 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 scope of it was so different, and I think seeing seeing all the sort of pieces start to fall into place and understanding how this is really this kind of like drawn out sort of detective story, I guess, um, is, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely enjoying it all come together and, um, eager for, you know, I, I want all the episodes. I want them now.
0: <laughs> you want the Netflix model.
2: Yeah. But I, I mean, I, I like, I appreciate, um, I do appreciate having to sort of digest each episode. Like actually like after watching the first two I actually did wait like a week before um, watching the second two, even though they were available at the same time, because I i mean, I think part of it was like, okay, whoa, I need to like adjust to this crazy world. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, I feel conflicted. Like I, it's interesting. Um, there's this thing, there's this kind of um, thing that I think gets referenced a lot when talking about the sort of Netflix model versus the um, – I don't know, more traditional episode a week model. And everyone talks about the water cooler, like, oh, that you go to work and you talk to people at the water cooler about what you saw on TV that week. And that that's like this kind of experience. And it's funny because like, I mean, I guess because I don't have that kind of job and I don't go to the water cooler. And I don't know if that's really what people
0: do. For the record, I have the sort of job that would be that sort of job, and no one actually does that. It's not a thing. I don't know if it ever was a thing. I think it's just like lazy writer's shorthand.
1: I think so, too. So uh, Olivier told me that he has had experiences at his uh, workplace where many people, like, because he, you know, he is married to me, and therefore, as like a mandate, has to mention Twin Peaks every hour on the hour (laughs) (laughs) to random strangers. Uh, Anyway, no, so like he brings up Twin Peaks a little bit at work, and he's been pretty regularly surprised, actually, at how much people want to talk to him about it and are excited like and 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 want to say things like I've heard so much about it and there there does seem to be a way in which the episodes I think are kind of filtering through the larger consciousness level right now and again credit to, to Lynch with this model I don't think something like that would have happened if everything had been dumped in the first day I just don't think that would happen I mean I think there's a realization that like this kind of stuff takes a while to make its way into people's minds and Um, you know, things that are difficult as much as maybe it's easier to just, if it's difficult, you can just power through it in 18 hours. It's going to be an incredibly different experience than if you like have time to get on board with it and, and get there. And I did want to point out, I found out today, actually, I was surprised to hear this. I mean, on the one hand, surprised on the other hand, not surprised at all, but episode nine, the one that we're talking about today or part nine, uh, was had the highest rating so far of any of the Twin Peaks episodes, which is the highest live ratings, um, which I think were something like, I forget what the actual numbers are for the live ratings, but there was a report that Showtime came out with recently that said uh, with their work of adding together the streaming data with the live episode watches and DVR watches, it seems like the show is averaging about 2 million viewers an episode, which is great because the live numbers are much, much lower than that. And there was a lot of early stories about people being like, oh, the ratings are not good and blah, blah, blah. This, the two million an episode kind of puts paid to that idea. But then I also, it's really interesting to hear that after like part eight, totally blowing up the water cooler. By the way, I think the water cooler now includes like texting and uh, Reddit and like a million other things, right? Yeah.
0: The 4chan water cooler. <laughs> the, uh, I, I, I was confused about that report because it wasn't clear to me if it was US only or global, like all views.
1: My guess is that's US only, but I, cause I would be shocked if that. I can't believe that that would be global. Like, I just can't believe that. Especially because my guess is that Showtime isn't including those numbers, because my understanding is is that Showtime streaming in other countries is being routed through other services. Like, in Canada, it's Crave TV. In Mexico, I think they're streaming them through Netflix or something. So, anyway, my guess is they don't have that information yet.
0: Uh, Something to consider, because, you know, the last episode was trending sort of all over the place. Anyway, we're not here to talk about the last episode. We're here to talk about this week's episode, which by the time you hear this will possibly be the last episode, but whatever. Uh, that's uh, part nine. And, you know, we talk a lot about the relationship between Twin Peaks, The Return, and Prestige Television, um, but one of the sort of givens of most Prestige dramas, or really most most serialized dramas, I don't think it's, it's exclusive to the Prestige realm, is that in a serialized drama, you will have sort of key episodes like premieres and finales, uh, something that airs like on, on sweeps or whatever. You know, a particular episode where someone dies or um, there's a, a particular plot pivot. Um, and then there's the other episodes. There's the the table setting episodes where um, there's a lot of exposition. um key things happen that maybe aren't that exciting but sort of, quote, needed to happen. Um, And if you're lucky and your show is good, then the table-setting episodes will be uh, still entertaining and worthwhile and not make you feel like you've um, lost part of your life in some sort of pointless vortex. Um, I'm speaking as a a, a voice of experience from a, a, a veteran of TV podcasting. Um, so I, I, th- I think it's safe, I think we can agree that if there is if, if, if Twin Peaks does in fact feature table setting episodes, that this was among them. Um, and I, I think the original run, you can argue, had table setting episodes as well. Um, I mean, I think most of the, actually, I think most of season two were table setting episodes. Um, what, what the hell was going on that table? What the table was going to be used for? I have no idea.
1: Simon, parts of season two were like feeding table scraps to the dog episodes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think this week we really got to see what a, a Twin Peaks table setting episode looks like. I think there's, uh, I think that's both good and maybe not so good. Um, for some of it, but i my 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 overall feeling is positive. I can certainly understand other people. um let me put it a different way. I can't imagine this being anyone's favorite episode of this season.
1: yeah, this is a very slow table setting process um for for me, just overall generally about the episode I, I think Simon, you're right to say that maybe probably nobody's gonna call this their favorite episode, but I think alternately. I think it's maybe important to acknowledge, too, that so much of what Lynch is doing in these kinds of episodes that aren't, you know, like the parts, maybe that aren't the first opening two episodes and then aren't part eight, is that really, as Simon has pointed out critically on occasion sometimes, these episodes don't necessarily work as our encapsulated kind of things. Instead, it tends to feel like there are chunks that are like doing one sort of thread of what the overall season is doing than other chunks that are doing something else. And they don't necessarily work, um, you know, particularly coherently together as something that's kind of thematically organized but so that being said, it's like you might not necessarily love the episode as a whole, but there are such great kind of things in it still that there are scenes in it that you end up that I end up really loving. I mean, for example, I am so gratified and I have been asking for this and I'm so happy the Twin Peaks gods gave this back to me. Bobby Briggs is in this episode and he gets things to do and it made me so happy. So so there are things here that like I really love and we'll, and we'll go through all of that. But um, I do think there is a sense that this episode as a whole maybe was a little bit. Uh, just maybe not the most exciting. That being said, I do think there are interesting arguments to be made for like what Lynch is doing here in terms of Needing to kind of check off these sort of exposition boxes, right? Like, you get the sense that this episode is like they, they had some information they needed to get through, and that's what this episode is doing on the whole. But I think part of why people are reacting so, um, specifically to this episode, like, there's been a couple of, uh, recappers at different places and reviewers that were sort of less than pleased with this or kind of saying it was, it was not, that they, it was a two exposition heavy episode. It felt like filler. Um, I think the reason people are reacting that way is that Lynch is, is doing his kind of trademark stuff with the exposition stuff here in the sense that not only is he not interested in kind of like integrating it and making it this sort of like part of the narrative flow or covering it up or delivering it to you like spoonful of sugar wise, he's doing the opposite. Lynch is like, in this episode, he is taking these kind of expositional things and carving them out from the rest of the episode and making them very like presentational, making them almost jokey. Like the scene with um, Cole where where, where they're in the buckhorn morgue and Cole pulls uh, Albert out into the hallway and says, let's think out loud. And like the exposition becomes a joke then Albert proceeds to repeat things that we've already heard other characters talk about three times. Like, ex- exposition in this episode is not only exposition, it becomes repetition. Like, I don't know, 80% of the stuff that's rehashed in this episode in terms of, like, characters announcing things that we already know is stuff that we've already heard multiple times. So there, I, I do think that Lynch is kind of over, he's purposefully overdoing like the presentational aspects of the exposition stuff here, whether that's enjoyable or successful is like an open question, but I, I find it interesting too. I don't know.
2: I think, I mean, I would agree with that. Maybe just to riff on it. Like there's also when they're in the airplane and, um, there's like this funny moment, um, where, you know, David Lynch is like, Oh, okay. I have to go tell the pilot that we're gonna go to Buckhorn. And mm-hmm. it's, like, this funny thing where I'm, like, why are you showing this? Like, why Why do we need to see this? Like, it's this thing that he says he's going to do it. Then we watch him do it. And then we watch him get, like, the um, you know, alcohol, yeah, for um, for Diane. And, um, yeah, it's just, like, this funny moment where, I mean, it's, I think it's exactly what you're describing where there's um, – it's it's kind of made so – Um, it it is both this kind of like verbal repetition and then you watch the thing happen. Um, Yeah. It's, it's a strange, um, strange way of drawing these things out. And yeah.
0: Yeah. The scenes like that. um, I recently rewatched the lobster and There was a joke in it that actually struck me as as it reminded me a little bit of Twin Peaks where um, you have a a character saying some dialogue and then Rachel Weisz's narration comes in and repeats the dialogue we just heard in the same style (laughs) of of narration as the rest of the film. Sort of uh, I I get kind of the same feeling from some of the scenes you described. Um, Speaking of humor, uh, there's a a fair amount of it in this episode, which I think we could probably have seen coming given sort of like the tonal whiplash the show has been giving us. And, also, and, you know, as a reaction against everything we got last week, which was, you know, light on humor, you might say. Um, and uh, I wanted to specifically uh, talk about the um, the Jerry stuff. Um, I was going to say something else, and then I changed mid-thought, and I thought, no, let's talk about Jerry. Um, so, and the reason I wanted to bring it up is, one, because obviously it's hilarious, um, but two, like I've ha- I've seen a lot of people th- actually theorize about these scenes that it's not j- that Jerry's not just on some sort of like hilarious drug trip, but that something else might be happening. I was curious if anyone else thought that might be true as well.
1: Well, I definitely, the thing that I love about the Jerry sequence is, I mean, A, the, the, the sound mixing and the voice saying, I am not your foot, is, is golden. Like, that's golden pony boy. I mean, there's some, that, that's just like tears of laughter with the I am not your foot. But what I love about that sequence, and, and I think Lynch is doing this in a number of ways throughout the episode, the Bill Hastings sequence is like the other clear example of this, is, is this trademark Lynch thing where it starts off very humorous and very funny and you know exactly sort of what the reaction is to that scene that you're experiencing Expected to give, and then Lynch just drags it out, and we're and we're still there with Jerry looking at his foot and being terrified, and the foot not moving, and you keep getting these overhead shots of the foot, and. For me, I found it very effective in the sense that I think, like you, Simon, I, mean, I, I then switched into the mode of, like, wait a minute, is there something more important going on here? Like, you know, Jerry's been in these woods, and as we all remember from the original series, the woods are, like, the place of evil, right? And Jerry's been out there for a while. He doesn't seem to be able to leave. Like, is the foot really evil? And, and then, of course, it's back to being funny again at the end, and you're sort of whiplashed around this, like, weird scene. You have no idea what's going on. I found it super effective.
2: I mean, I also actually connected the foot thing to um, the arm and I I mean specifically that it sounds like the same voice to me actually like there's something about the voice that I was like oh is the foot voice the arm (laughs) and I don't know like what I don't know not the same thing but it it seemed like there was something um that's that's actually was my first thought when I heard the voice of the foot speaking to him (laughs) and um but yeah I mean I think you're right I mean the one thing we know is that the woods are not what they seem. So, well, the owls are not what they seem. But I think that kind of, you know, extends to the woods as a as a whole.
1: Yeah, we haven't had any owls in the return. Hey, I wonder if that was a, an acknowledgement that the owls were always a bit <laughs> slightly ridiculous. I don't know. Maybe the finale will be all owls. We're just going to get a lot of owls later. Uh, I don't know. I, were you? Did you have other thoughts about the Jerry thing, Simon?
0: I mostly the reason I was soliciting opinions about the foot scene is that I don't know what to make of that scene, or um, the Jerry stuff in general. I mean, I've seen people. I, you mentioned the arm, Jessica, and I think people are keen to um, maybe connect Jerry's foot to other um, other instances of appendages and um, sentience, but um, <laughs> or lack thereof. But beyond that, no, I, I don't know what, uh, what, what's going on there other than, yes, the voice was hilarious. Um, and there's, I, I, I find the, the sort of permanent disconnect between, like we got the, a scene early on in the return with Jerry and Ben together. And ever since then, they've sort of been, they've been apart for the whole season, seemingly in like the same way, um, and I'm, I'm not sure why, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what, what's, what's being aimed at here in terms of, um, in terms of how we're supposed to interpret their relationship, but it's something to keep an eye on, I guess. Um, the other sort of comic aspect I wanted to talk about was the relationship between Cole and Diane and, um, and, uh, Tammy, Agent Tammy, um, Which increasingly feels like it's a comic relationship. Um, But again, I'm not quite sure what to make of it. I think one of the most notable scenes is that like two minute shot or whatever it is of um, of uh, Cole having what seems to be his first cigarette in a very long time. uh, Even though we can be relatively certain that was not David Lynch's first cigarette in a very long time. Um, As uh, Lynch fans will know, he is a unrepentant smoker. And then I've – this is also a good time to start talking about Christabel and her acting because we haven't necessarily been um, the kindest or the, the biggest fans of Christabel's acting on this podcast. Uh, I have read defenses of it. Like, I've, I've read some people who think that she's actually good um, in, in the, sort of the hottest Twin Peaks take I can imagine right now. Um, but um, – and people specifically pointed to that scene and the way that, um, you know, Diane and Cole seem to have this uh, genuine connection and her sort of body language kind of slumps over the course of that sequence, um, which unfortunately I have not had a chance to rewatch. But it is, I mean, it's, I, I think it's interesting that other people are picking up on sort of physical performance cues from her that I haven't. So maybe it, it's, I, I, I have to be... I may have to sort of uh, acknowledge that perhaps she is an acting genius an an intuitive performer of great skill that I, and and we're, and we're all just too thick to notice
2: i mean well, I do think in this episode i'd say she has the most um complexity, I guess, if you can even call it that, I don't know. (laughs) Like there's a scene that you're describing, which actually I thought was like super funny and like very weird. Like that. I think again, it's, it's one of those scenes where Lynch decides to stay for much longer than that is at all necessary. And it's also a scene where like nothing really is happening. And in that scene, it's interesting because I really expected Diane to communicate this message that she receives from evil Cooper That she receives by a text, um, and instead she she doesn't. Back to the point. So what? I'm actually blanking on her character's name, um, Christabel. Tammy Preston. Tammy Tammy Preston. Yeah. Ancient Christabel. (laughs) Ancient Christabel. I'm like, what's her name? So Tammy. In this episode, I actually thought there's something kind of interesting where I feel like in in this kind of longer shot. her presence as this kind of um, almost like a model who's there kind of doing nothing. She's like moving her body in these ways and kind of posing Um, to me was this kind of um, almost like a counterpoint to her actually being the one who goes and does an interrogation in this case, or, Uh, you know, like is the one who's kind of also like a skillful person in terms of, um, you know, having this whole conversation about the major and um, that that all unfolds um, because of her, but also that it's very um, kind of uh, methodical and um, I don't know, like, I I guess I wonder if there's something there about this kind of her like beautiful figure and how she is kind of this, um, I don't know, like so far has not um, been allowed to have very much depth, but then like
1: obviously also has these kind of capacities. Um, I don't know. That's some interest. I had not thought about that scene specifically next to her being the interrogator there, which is an interesting comparison. I mean, I think, um, I think it was Emily Stevens writing for AV club who said something similar about this long smoking sequence where basically you could look at it as like her, a form of self presentation from the Tammy Preston character breaking down effectively. Like it just sort of descends into this series of kind of ticks and poses. And, I think that's interesting and I am I'm, I'm totally willing to to like believe that that might be what is happening here and where it's going but I it, for me all of this is still very difficult to it's difficult for me to figure out how I feel about the Tammy pressing character without knowing where it's going because we 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 also have all this sort of on uh unfolding thing with um I don't know, David Lynch's characters, like Gordon Cole's character's uh, presence in relation to Krista uh, Bell, and, and the Tammy Preston character maybe playing out his relationship to like women and this idea of maybe he's condescending like maybe the women are. Or maybe tammy preston is being put in this sort of like child's position in relation to the rest of the team where she's never allowed to do anything and she's always sort of kept at arm's length um but then as jessica points out like she she also is able to sort of she's also doing a lot of the stuff like she's investigating things um there's also the other question right now about tammy preston which is uh like fans have been pointing this stuff out which is that there's some odd I don't know, information gaps or something around, uh, what's, what she's doing in the show versus what her character was in the secret history book. Because in the secret history book, she totally knows who Major Briggs is. Like, she discovers that Major Briggs, uh, plays a major role in the secret history, which I won't give away. But, but then, you know, she sort of doesn't, she seems to not know who Major Briggs is or doesn't know him as much or something in the series. So there's all kinds of, like, weird question marks around this character. So it's, for me, it's very difficult to, like, get on board with a claim as big as, you know, uh, this is actually a really great performance from Krista Bell because she's actually this really insecure character, like, posturing. I That, I feel like I need some more uh, fill-in before I could get to quite that level, but I'm still waiting. I'm still willing to see what goes on.
2: I don't really... It's interesting, though. I don't actually see her as insecure. I think she's dealing with... Like, I see her as someone dealing with other people's perceptions of her, but mm-hmm. I guess I don't see her as insecure. Like, she actually seems super composed. Like, she does... I do think in the um, the longer shot with Gordon and Diane, like, I do think that um, there is this... Like, to me, that does seem to be a kind of... Um, maybe if there's anywhere that I see a kind of insecurity or self-consciousness or something, that's where it is. But it also seems so performed that yeah. and so artificial. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I think it's true that, I mean, I think that about a lot of things in this where it's hard to say where they're going. And so it's hard to really take a strong stance about it.
0: Well, we can do what everyone else is doing and speculate wildly and hope we're right. Um, (laughs) But the, uh, I mean, maybe another thing worth noting since we're talking about performance is uh, Matthew Lillard was interviewed about um, the interrogation sequence. And first of all, it just it's, it's a funny interview to read because you you get to understand that besides Kyle McLaughlin, like really people were so in the dark and they really had to pester Frost and Lynch for like any information about their characters or like any context that could help ground their their performance. You also learn if Lillard is right, uh, that the sequence the interrogation sequence was the first thing that Christabel shot. And as Christabel is not a professional actress, or, like, someone who has acted in stuff before. It was just her first, perf- like, film performance, period. Which, can, if you can just imagine that for a moment, like, let's set aside any thoughts about her performance. Like, you've never acted in a film before. And you're going to do it for the first time. And it's going to be, like, an extended, like, two or three take sequence of, like, a deeply emotional... Um interrogation sequence with just you and one other like much more trained actor uh and the director is David Lynch. Can you imagine that
1: i th- there is something interesting there about the sense in which and and I think christabel probably deserves credit for this is this idea that um I find it impressive that like she never has acted before she signs on for this sort of major role in this show where she clearly isn't being given a lot of information. I mean, I don't know, maybe because she was close, she's close to Lynch. She gets a little bit more information than like Matthew Lillard does, but I, I sort of doubt it. So there is, there is kind of an impressive leap of faith on her part, like putting her sort of artistic trust in somebody like Lynch to that extent when she is sort of so on the line in terms of her presentation in the show. And you know, this question as to whether like it's doing her any favors, I think, is like an important one. I mean, I, I, I this is why I want to believe that there is going to be some kind of overall payoff to like what what Lynch is using this character for, and what all of this kind of thematizing around her is going to lead up to. And I, and I think there will be something interesting. It's just, it's I do think she maybe deserves some credit for like trusting <laughs> Lynch to that degree.
0: I do think it's funny in almost a cruel sense in context because the context of the scene is like you've been. Do- You've been doing such a good job. Let's take you in and let you do your 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 own interrogation. But in reality, it's her first acting job. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's kind of intense.
1: It's true. Well, and I mean, and and you know, Matthew Lillard is a guy who's been in Hollywood for a long time, and not necessarily somebody who's known for like his acting. Despite that, and then in this episode, I mean, like he, he's been great in the return, right? I mean, here again, I think is Lynch's. Real like ability to work with performers and see things in people that other people just don't see. I mean, Matthew Lillard, like you know, he's he's always played sort of a clown, like he's always been a bit of a joke. And I don't mean that about him as an actor. I mean, like that's his role, his shtick, kind of. Um, and I, but I, I think here Lynch manages to really mine that for like a level of, um, you know, pathos isn't exactly the right word, but but there are moments in Lillard's spiel. particularly the areas where he's saying things like, why can't you help me? And like, you weren't there. You don't know where there really is something impressively emotional coming out of a scenario that, that, really is a little ridiculous right like he's describing the scenario where he's in another dimension and all these people show up and people are being killed and heads are being removed and it's and it's sort of inexplicable and yet Lillard's performance really presents this idea that like he's been quite damaged by this like this has really done some serious damage to him uh and then of course we get the quick flip into the scuba diving stuff and we get this move between the humorous and the um tragic and it's difficult to tell where you're supposed to respond to all of that stuff. But um, anyway, that scene was pretty great. I thought it was great.
0: Lillard has sort of been carving out a little niche for himself over the last couple of years on stuff like um, the good wife and the bridge. Um, So I'm just, I'm behind. I'm behind on the Lillard news. (laughs) It's fine. No, but before you're, you're totally right that when he did those shows, it was like, Oh, Matthew Lillard is acting now. Um, So there is some precedent for it, but I, I think that for a lot of Twin Peaks fans, they'll probably have the same thought you did of being like, him. Um but anyway, we should we should move on uh from that sequence. Um oh wait, no, we shouldn't. Uh because there is one other thing that we need to talk about, um, which is alternate universes. Um and so uh, it's it's funny that everything always seems to come back to Lost for some reason. But um, the uh this notion that um, you know and I don't want to get into book spoilers for the secret history, which I haven't read, but I have read spoilers about. Um, you know, there's this notion that based on certain, just basic factual differences for, you know, historical events and characters that the secret history seems to take place in or intimate the existence of an alternate universe. And then here we get a character talking about how he has been to another universe, more or less making, you know, if we take him at face value, which probably we should, I think. Um... You know, based on how his story lines up with plot specifics, um, we're now dealing with a show that has two universes, right? Um, and like, I don't know what the what the what the cosmology is in terms of like, do the red room and the purple room and the um, the the beige room and the the the, the zero room, like, how do they, how does one line up line up to the other? Does it matter? I don't think we're ever gonna know, and I don't think it's that important. Although it is fun to think about. Um, how do we feel about this being a show, like the show delving into these more, more sort of sci-fi elements? And and what what do we think it does?
1: I have some uh, some thoughts about that stuff. Um, I mean, the the point that I wanted to make about the scene with Lillard, uh, that that gets a little bit, I think, at what the answer to your question, Simon, is. I it made me laugh. It almost made me laugh out loud when one of the early lines from Lillard in that scene is uh, Preston asks him some question about the events, and and Lillard says, "Well." You know, Ruth... Ruth was really good at uncovering hidden documents, and that's how this. Ha- and it's it is like that's like a ridiculous thing to write. Like that's crazy. Like it's nonsense. And then you also get stuff in that whole um, sequence where uh, Lillard says, "You know, we, we first went to the zone and we met the major, and the major tells us to get him these coordinates from a secret military database, and then we just went and got those coordinates, and then we came back and brought- and like you're listening to this stuff, and it all goes by." Very- very quickly and it's only if you're sort of paying attention that you realize just how how goofy a lot of that is like it it, but again I appreciate it I don't think it's a mistake I think it's the show very much embracing a its own history as a show that in the second season really tried to get a plot going about like uh, aliens kidnapping Briggs and tattooing Twin Peak signs behind people's ears and like it you know this show has always had a kind of very strong Genre like component that maybe embraces sort of is like quote unquote like sillier genres and this and I say that with love I'm a huge sci-fi person I love all that stuff I don't I I, I that's why people I love love Twin Peaks I think is part of this is it's complete refusal to sort of um, differentiate between high genre, low genre, all that stuff. Everything's mixed together. And so some of that you could just say is Frost writing sensibility, right? I mean, I do think Frost gravitates toward this stuff a little bit, so that's probably part of why it's there too. But I kind of like the fact that the show is continuing to sort of acknowledge this this history of its own stuff. I mean, again, it was like the progenitor of things like the X-Files. Like Twin Peaks was really some of the first people to do this kind of stuff, and I enjoy them kind of getting to bring that back now, but also bringing it back in a way that just sort of acknowledges that like it's a bit silly. Like it's fun. We all we all are just agreeing to get on board with this. Like I it doesn't it doesn't need this treatment of like prestige television where it needs to have this incredibly complicated like diegesis and narrative in order to make it somehow cold more realistic or more believable. Like, you know, this and and this course opens up to this question of the website that we should definitely talk about the search for the zone which we all know is like a game but we all love it like it's a game we want to play we're all so excited to get on board with this
2: i mean i think maybe that's it's like along with the i don't know other universes there are also other universes outside of the show and i think that like having this website i think is a version of that of like another universe where this thing can come alive and I feel like that also about, you know, whatever books exist, like that this is kind of like an intertextual world that, um, I don't know. It's interesting. Like, I think, so I just saw the website this morning and, um, I think it, it's, I think what's interesting about it is it, it brings you back to this moment when the internet was still kind of a mysterious place where you could, um, have a website that looks looks like this, that has these, you know, um, crazy kind of um, cult ideas on some level or allows you to... or gives a kind of venue for, like, exploring another world.
1: Mm-hmm. And,
2: and that you can find the people who are also wanting to explore another world. And mm-hmm. um, I don't know. So, like, to me, it's actually, like, part of the way that, like, you know, there's no... Um, So when Twin Peaks started, there's this kind of, there's this like murder mystery. And I feel like this stuff about, um, to me, like now the kind of sci-fi stuff or, you know, having this kind of other universe is like a different way of creating a kind of mystery of like, of actually giving you something that's um, beyond like what's here and, Um, I don't know. I mean, I think like I'm really enjoying it like to me It's what sustains my interest is wanting to understand like how all these pieces fit together Like Mm -hmm. what is this other, you know, what is this other world? What's the zone? Like
0: I mean I, I would just like to say that the the website stuff. It just made me Glad for where we've gotten with the internet so far that it is now a place where we've weeded out all the bad opinions (laughs) and and culty thought and just insanity um it's good now and i think it's it's important that we got there and we get to see that perspective my other question is on the subject of the zone have either of you ever watched anything by adam curtis
1: uh i've seen parts of adam curtis stuff i haven't seen all of it but i've seen bits of it
0: i don't know if he touches on it in his his other movies but in um his recent one hyper normalization um a lot of it revolves around this concept of the zone Um, and, uh, I'm, my, my Adam Curtis is a little, uh, a little rusty, but, um, essentially like the, the zone is, you know, where like the, the distinction between real and not real is, has become sort of arbitrary. I mean, basically I, I, I interpret the zone in his, in like the Adam Curtis context as being sort of like the numb space that is sort of, like, brought about by the the latest stages of neoliberalism. So when when um, when Miguel Ferrer comes in with, we're, we're in the zone now, or whatever, I had a bit of a moment of, like, did they do that on purpose? Which I'm sure they didn't. I don't think that David Lynch and Mark Frost, like, sit around reading political theory. Like, um, we, we've talked about this before, but, like, you know, Frost is pretty much, like, a standard issue American liberal who... You know, thinks Russia is bad, and Lynch talked about how he didn't like Mitt Romney because he wants to get his mitts on our money. Like that's a real thing that he said. I was gonna bring up another
1: zone. I have, yeah. There's the stalker zone as well. Is that what you were thinking of? Yeah. There, I mean,
0: there's the there's the stalker zone. There's the Twilight Zone. Uh, there's the dance zone. I mean, there's all kinds of zones.
1: I like your point, Simon, about this idea that the Adam Curtis zone is like the space of kind of uh, indistinguishability between good and bad or like real and unreal, all that stuff. I, I like that a lot because it, it ties into a couple of other things I wanted to say. But I feel like we should clarify something for people who are listening to this podcast who maybe aren't following the Internet this closely around the show. So for people who didn't catch this already the website that bill hastings refers to in this episode um where he talks about his blog is a real website that somebody that somebody related to the show built on behalf of the show and it's uh, in the searchforthezone.com and it's filled with sort of easter eggs i mean if you're you can explore it yourself or you could just sort of google it and and there'll be people explaining to you all the easter eggs and videos and everything in it uh we should also acknowledge that the website is in large part like an advertisement for the twin peaks soundtrack which <laughs> i find to be hilarious because it is such a successful <laughs> advertisement. I have to admit, it's kind of amazing. Um, it's great.
0: My favorite thing was how, within moments of people discovering it, I had multiple people. I don't. I only follow like 150 people on Twitter or something, and I had multiple people independently scouring the source code for the website and independently coming up with that um, that uh, video of the interrogation room. Um, that again, like they they absolutely knew like people were going to be. Um I sometimes think about what would have happened if the show had all dumped oh, like over one night on Netflix. Like I think we 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 would probably be done talking about it by now um as a culture, but I I think that we probably would have had like conferences. I think we would have had um I think we would have had like entire towns taken up with like the intense work of decoding Twin Peaks over a weekend like People people love this. People love to do this. I mean, it's amazing, though. It's
2: like, what's more satisfying, though, when you have, like, such a rich world that has all these different layers. And I think that's, like, what's really... I mean, it's, it's also on some level just fun. Like, the idea that even this morning, like, Kate sent me this thing of someone, like, actually, you know, tracking these coordinates and, like, seeing what's there. Mm. And it's like...
0: Has anyone gone there yet?
1: Yeah, this person did. It's, there's a post on Welcome to Twin Peaks about somebody... Uh, who went there and like scoured the space and it was really interesting, but sorry, go ahead, Jessica. I think this kind
2: of, um, and Simon, I guess this is maybe also what you were talking about, but, um, like the way that the show itself, I think has this power to bleed into our world outside of its representations. And, um, and that like, we all really enjoy this, that, you know, maybe there is some kind of, um, you know, Easter egg hunt we can go on and, um, uncover so many more aspects of this that, um, but it's also just smart on this level of like understanding, um, understanding the internet, or I don't know, these like basic things about like, um, you know, releasing the show in this way, putting this website online, knowing people are going to find it like, and then I don't know. It's like, to me, there's something really brilliant just about like the marketing of all of this. And like, um, even leading up to it like what's given what's withheld um, yeah yeah and I yeah. feel like I'm a sucker for it that's that's the other thing is like watching myself just be just like eat it up <laughs> and yeah. and kind of shamelessly like feeling like oh I'm like totally um yeah like I I love it
1: I think it's impressive that like I don't know. I'm, I'm, you know, I feel like as an adult, I'm a little jaded about a lot of stuff. And like Jessica and I were talking this morning about how, you know, we know that that website is kind of an advertisement for, for like a thing that's going to make somebody money. And we, and we sort of don't care because it's done with such like, I don't know, like interest and creativity. It's like hard not to get on board with it. I mean, it's fun. Um, the, the other thing I wanted to add about the, the coordinate stuff and this question of like, The real and not real and what, and what Jessica was saying is I, I also think there's something really interesting to be said about the way in which, um, the show itself, but then particularly in this move to creating the website space does something which I think we're all pretty co- – like people, particularly in academics and like this idea of postmodernism and all this stuff, it's like people are pretty comfortable saying like, oh, yeah, what's real, what's not real, we all – that's not really a question for us anymore, and like it doesn't matter, we're all comfortable with whatever. Um, but I had a real moment when I went to that website, and you click on the – um you click on the links that are the like readings or the online articles that, you know, quote Bill Hastings has put up in this blog and, and they're long pieces. Like some of them are about, you know, quantum mechanics or like alternate worlds theories or whatever. And I'm trying to read through these and I had a genuine moment where I was like, I really can't tell if these are actual articles that have been posted on the internet or if these are things that somebody wrote for the episode and or for the website. And I was like, it would take me hours to figure this out. And I like I feel like... You know, I'm an academic. Like, I look at things for a living and figure out, like, what their provenance is and, like, what they're doing and how they work. And I had this genuine moment where I was like, I really can't tell. And I found it actually quite unsettling I was like I don't know what to do with this and there's there's that one and then the other the other version of that was the person who went to this space where they um, went to investigate like these coordinates in uh, South Dakota uh, wrote about how they arrived and they discovered like there wasn't anybody there and they asked permission to go on this person's land uh, and then I find in a really interesting like meta reflection of some of the things that the show is about the person who went um, is a member of the Lakota tribe there and wrote that they had to ask permission of the persons land it was because because they were actually quite afraid that they would be like attacked violently if they went onto basically a white person's land without permission, uh, which I thought was a very... Unfortunate, but true and interesting reflection of things that the show uh, has at least mentioned. So that's something to be said. But anyway, so they got onto this person's land and are looking in this area, and there were there were tire tracks there, like recent tire tracks. So this person posited that somebody maybe had already gotten there before them, and they looked around, and all they could find was in one corner somebody had dug something up. There was a a metal box that looked like it had a bullet hole in it that was empty. And so they're positing that somebody got there before them and, like, found this thing that had been buried for the show. And, of course, that could all just be nonsense. That could just be, like, a box that had been there forever. But this person is, like, it looks like it could have been, like, 25 years old. And I, I was, like, is this real or not? Or does it not matter? But, like, it was so much fun. Like, I was, like, hey, who cares? It's so great.
0: So, Kate, you're telling me that you're having trouble distinguishing real from fake. It sounds like you might have entered the zone.
2: <laughs> uh, I think we're exactly. all in the zone. I mean, isn't that, like, you know... Also, one of the biggest, like, political problems of this moment is that we're all in the zone and no one knows what's real. I feel like right now we're actually seeing this, like, I mean, as Kate was saying, you know, like, whatever, as an academic, you get kind of, like, immune to this, um, that there's actually something given about that. But then it's, like, this moment and... um, you know our our post truth moment or whatever, where seeing 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 a much uglier side of that, and I don't know, yeah, it's maybe just like another way that I feel like the show. Then um, I don't know, makes makes me think about the world outside of the show because to me it kind of comes back to this question too of like what all these bands are doing in the show and like, mm-hmm. um, and I feel like you know for me there's something about them. This is both a kind of form of earnest promotion, but then it's also a kind of like making fun of them and hipster culture. A kind of like... um, I don't know. For me, there's like something that's um, kind of ironic about it. And I guess... um, But anyway, what I appreciate about this more maybe sci-fi elements of the show or something is that for me, it's like a way of like kind of giving you something else. Like that it's not just like, um, you know, so much of this universe of Twin Peaks or post-Twin Peaks or whatever we call it is like actually a really fucked up world. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's something about, um, you know, creating another universe um, or other universes um, that is is kind of a way of giving you, I mean, I guess it is a form of escapism or whatever, but I, I guess I think about it more as this kind of um, sense of mystery or whatever um, that I actually really appreciate about it, mm-hmm. um, and maybe maybe that's also like um, I mean I guess we could if we wanted to talk about what what that really means or whatever, but I think that's that's part of what I like about those more sci-fi elements.
1: Or one of the things that we could bring up here, I think, at this point in terms of like the ways in which Lynch sort of introduces mystery and like the uncanny and again this possibility of maybe more than one (laughs) world or something into the show at even a more banal level is the thing that the fans picked up on pretty quickly in this episode which is the idea that uh that we here are being told that there are two timelines that are happening in these return episodes. Um, And, and what I'm talking about here is how uh, at one point we get the scene with Hawk and we have to talk about Bobby and and Hawk and Major Briggs. Like that's a big part of this episode, but uh, is in that sequence you get, um, uh, sorry, Sheriff Truman reading the note that's been left by Major Briggs. And it says, you know, and he says in a couple of days, it will be October uh, 1st and 2nd and then later in the episode you get Bill Hastings signing the Major Briggs photo uh, and dating it as 920 and there's of course some debate about whether Bill Hastings' handwriting just isn't clear, like if that was supposed to be 929 and it just really reads as 920, but like the fans of course are like, no, this is serious. There's two timelines and um and, and it actually it does make your head hurt a little bit to try to figure this out. Like Olivier and I spent sort of 20 minutes afterwards trying to make sense of that. Uh it, it does seem likely that what's going on is that um The Evil Cooper stuff and Cole and the Buckhorn South Dakota stuff is happening all in one timeline. Like, they necessarily are linked because Cole goes to see Evil Cooper after the car accident and, like, Dougie. So all of those things are tied together. But what is totally possible and what seems to be happening is that the town of Twin Peaks their timeline is a couple weeks later which are a couple days later which also makes sense because um, Jade mails that key and then it turns up in Twin Peaks quite quickly afterwards which doesn't make a ton of sense in terms of how long it takes to mail things so so there is a sense in which those uh, those scenes are taking place at a bit of a later time we don't have any idea why yet but I, I do find it interesting that there's again this sort of split um, and, and Olivia brought this up in the sense that like we we take so much for granted. This idea that, like, if if you know, scenes are put together in a show comprised of moving images, we've been trained to assume that they're happening. They're happening basically simultaneously. And and Lynch again just here very subtly kind of undoes that and sort of just decenters us again, so we don't exactly know where we are or what's happening, which I, I quite liked.
0: You sort of teased this earlier, Kate, but we should really talk about. I think what was the the highlight of the episode for me, which was really the fact that. This episode acted as kind of a character spotlight for Bobby, uh, and a, and an acting spotlight for Dana Ashbrook, who I've always found it strange that he didn't seem to have much of a career after Twin Peaks, and um, you know because he was always sort of one of the most capable performers and one of the most charismatic. Um, and ever since I've seen him since, it's been in Twin Peaks related things, like you know when he did the Twin Peaks episode of Psych and here again on twin peaks and um just to see him get sort of um this 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 deeply emotional spotlight this week was very satisfying
1: yes it was and i and i think it's um my guess is that at least some of this has to do with the unfortunate you know passing of don davis the actor who played uh Major Briggs, because at the time Major uh, Don Davis gave interviews when Twin Peaks originally ended, saying he 'd been told that if there had been a season three he was going to play a much bigger role in terms of uh, you know helping Cooper and all of this stuff and so I suspect that this sort of increased focus on Bobby has to do with them creatively changing their plans around how to unfold this stuff and I think it 's super smart I think it, it makes so much sense to kind of have Bobby, who I think always has played a kind of um, maybe not like he's not necessarily a conscience of the show, but he's always played a kind of like emotional center. Like this is what is so interesting about him as a performer is he's just sort of so emotive and it's, and it's not necessarily just in terms of the crying stuff. It's also like the physicality. He's really good at just kind of wearing his emotions on the surface. Um, He has such an interesting physical presence. I really enjoyed getting to see him do things like, you know, run around with his big clompy shoes and legs like he did in the original series, Uh, like throw that uh, little metal tube on the ground and then chase after it. I mean, I, for me, those were some of the like really enjoyable kind of throwbacks to the original show. Uh, I really liked that a lot. What were you going to say about Bobby, Jessica? Oh,
2: aside from being in love with him, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I no. I mean, I feel like um, I mean I have a similar feeling about his um, his acting capacities. I mean, it's interesting because in um, the original Twin Peaks, he's he's really angry a lot, and I think yeah. in this. You know, and having this kind of, you know, dream that his his dad had about him kind of fulfilled. Um, I don't know. It's really sweet. <laughs> and, like, I think, you know, earlier we see him, you know, tear up when he sees the picture of Laura. And then now, you know, again, he has this, like, really emotional moment. But it's interesting because it's, like, I do think this is, like, you know, maybe a testament to his acting is that, now there's the same intensity, but it's it's not angry. It's like a different... Um, he's like emotionally a kind of different human um, while still being the same character. And um, I don't know, and that's like really apparent. And even like his interaction with his mom, um, who I just... I mean, I really thought she was also wonderful. I don't know why I was like really happy to see her. I know she's like super minor... And you know, just has this kind of message to
1: deliver, um, and then there's the whole thing with the chair, and then getting this like little capsule. I was quite happy to see Charlotte Stewart come back as well, who plays uh, Bobby Briggs' mother. Charlotte Stewart is one of those other figures who's been with Lynch like since the beginning. She she plays one of the main characters in Eraserhead uh, and has known him forever. Um, so it's great that she got sort of some space to work. Um, there was a little bit of an Easter egg in the scene where she's telling uh, the three sheriff characters she's telling them this uh news from from major briggs uh in one of the reaction shots when hawk uh you sort of see hawk looking next to him the footage is is clearly being run backwards you can tell from the way hawk blinks basically that the footage is being run backwards so this has been like a common theme throughout so i guess we're still waiting to see like if that uh has a, a more direct purpose other than just the sort of aesthetic thing but i i really enjoy it every time lynch does that um uh so she it was great to see her um Oh, I was going to say something about Bobby and oh, I know what I wanted to add as well. The the only thing that I can't help it, its sort of stuck in my mind a little bit watching uh, this, the sequence where they're outside and Bobby is saying, you know, my dad has done it again. He's written this note that references this place that we had when I was a child called Jackrabbit's Palace. For me, I have to admit i I'm not sure if if there is something going on there in terms of this this being like a conscious choice on the part of the writers or if there is maybe a little bit of sloppiness going on with this but i I have to admit it it bothers me a little bit that if if we are that in this new incarnation of the major Briggs character, there seems to be something of a squashing of what was going on with the major Briggs character in the first season, which is that the reason why it mattered that briggs becomes close to Bobby at the beginning of season two is because in season one he was such a kind of disciplinarian authoritarian figure and so fundamentally removed from like the space of Bobby and his youth and like the anger of youth and all of these things that that is why there is such an emotional kind of moment at the beginning of season two when when Don Davis seems to be able, like when Major Briggs seems to be able to overcome that and reach out to him and they connect despite that and, and for me it, it honestly it just didn't ring true this idea of Major Briggs Briggs playing games of make believe with Tiny Bobby in the woods. It just didn't make sense to me, and and maybe that's me being too kind of harsh or nitpicky or something. Um, I, but for me, it just I, I feel like they could have written that just slightly differently to acknowledge that they were they were um, apart from each other in their childhood, and that Bobby didn't become close to him until later or something. You know what I mean? I, I don't know.
0: There's an element of both characters, um, both Major and Bobby Briggs. Seeming to have like two timelines each as well, right? I, where it's sort of unintentional. Where Bobby is this, you know, open-hearted, you know, wears his emotions on his sleeve, very emotive um, character who in we see here having this this you know very, um, this very touching connection to his deceased father. But you know, as Fire Walk with Me makes very clear, like he was a killer before, right? Like he had this he was not necessarily that guy as, as a, as, uh, as a youth. Um, and I'm not that, which is not to say that people who have periods in their life where they are ruffians cannot later be, um, emotive heartthrobs, but, um, you know, there's, there's a, there's a, a duality there. Like, I, I'm willing to accept that, um, a character who might have been sort of a stern authoritarian at one stage in life might have, um, you know, a few years earlier been um, sort of a more of a tender caretaker. Has the show like done the legwork to to make that believable? Probably not. Um, but I'm I'm not sure that Lynch and Frost like went bent over backwards to make it make sense. But I'm not sure it's a contradiction either. I guess is what I'm saying.
1: It's not. It's just for me one of those things that I, I couldn't help notice it because, I mean, I think it. I think it matters when you're thinking about a show where there's these questions around, you know, violence, particularly violence in domestic spaces and this idea of, like, whether we're, we're dealing with misogyny when we see violence against women or we don't see it. It To me, it, it, it matters if the show is sort of if the show is erasing a character that when we first meet him is introduced by slapping his son across the face. You know what I mean? Like I I think it I can't help it. I think it matters if if we're if that is being totally left aside. And I I don't I think you're right, Simon. I mean, I think I I don't mean to be like too rigid about it or something. I can completely understand that like characters can be different and, and we can have sort of um you know, selves are not consistent across themselves through their whole lives. So it it totally makes sense to me. I just, it was something that I couldn't help but notice, like stick out for me. But I feel like we have many other things that we wanted to, uh, to get to here. Is there other, is there other things that people want to get on the table? I have things I wanted to bring up. Uh, how did people feel about, um, our, our encounter with Dougie in this episode where Dougie has his sort of moments of looking at the flag and the shoes and, uh, and everything.
0: You know, I've heard other people say this and I don't think they're wrong, um, you know, we've had so many scenes of Dougie sort of having a dawning realization or almost waking up or seeing something that seems to spark something. And it doesn't really it turns out to be like a dry hump, basically, um, which like it's kind of funny. And there is like the 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 trolling element or or whatever, like is kind of amusing, I, there's a part, a part of me that kind of feels like we've gotten enough of those scenes. Like as much as like the individual aspects are interesting, like the flag and the heels um, for those to be things that he responds to. um, I've seen people, I mean the heels would seem to be a foreshadowing of, of possibly Audrey's return, which like, it's just math at this point. There's only so many episodes left and we know that she's in it and she's going to show up. So like, at some point, like it stops being foreshadowing and starts just being like an inevitability. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, the uh, I, as much like I I didn't hate the sequence, but I kind of feel like okay, I get it.
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, the the thing about it that um, I'd say the only thing that to me was kind of interesting is like. Um, so you see the flag and there's the music and the heels, but then the woman who's walking leaves the frame and then we're like drawn back to the electric sockets Mm
1: -hmm.
2: and like, that's kind of where we leave. Um, and I mean, I agree. I think it's like at some point, like he needs to die or wake up. Like there really aren't (laughs) any other options at this point. Like there, there are two paths ahead and they need to like, like something needs to happen soon. But, um... Um, but yeah, like I think something that's kind of been interesting to me throughout this has been, and probably you guys have talked about this, um, like there's, you know, obviously this kind of these various forms of technology, but also like something with kind of electricity or energy and like, um, and so I guess like the, there's something about the pull of the electrical sockets and then thinking about when he was in the purple room and like there was that you know, crazy machine and...
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. For the for this Dougie scene, like, there was, there was a couple things I wanted to mention about it. I mean, I think it... It took me a while to notice it, but I, I do think it's worth pointing out that this is the first time that we have a shot that is from, uh, you know, Cooper slash Dougie's, like, uh, subjective viewpoint that isn't basically caused by the Red Room, right? I mean, the only other subjective, like experience that we've been given a hint that that Dougie is sort of thinking or experiencing things on his own is is always directed sort of through the Red Room getting his attention. So it's interesting that we sort of finally get the first version of that happening on its own, I think, is probably matters.
2: But isn't there, like, when he was in the casino, I felt like there was, like, we saw all the machines lighting up in a way that I thought was, like, a vision of his.
1: Arguably, it's the Red Room directing him, right? Because the vision that comes above the thing is the floor. Um, But... I mean, I, I don't know, I actually don't know how much, it, even if it matters, because as Simon points out, like, we've had lots of indications that he might be waking up, so this might not really be anything. But the thing I the thing I liked about this sequence, though, um, to me, it, it gave another side to the whole kind of Dougie uh, character, which I had not thought about before, which is that in the sequence where he looks first at the flag, and then particularly at these shoes of Audrey, um, it... it it made me think of the earlier moments where we have him like reaching out at characters badges and looking at uh, a guy in a cowboy hat at the statue in a cowboy hat, which is presumably a reference to the old Sheriff Truman, like all of these things. Um, there is a way in which it kind of positions the Dougie character as like another version of the Ben Rosenfeld character watching the glass box in the pilot, in the premiere, which is to say that the Dougie sort of functions as almost a joke about the Twin Peaks fan audience as these characters who are sort of like you know kind of stupidly desperately waiting for like and and searching the frame for signifiers of the old show, you know, like that we're all sort of desperately looking for Audrey's red shoes, or we're all desperately looking for the old sheriff Truman like blankly, I mean I, that feels like a bit harsh to me, and so I don't really think that that's exactly what is going on, but I couldn't help it, like it definitely felt to me like a strong connection, I don't know.
2: Yeah, I mean, maybe there is something like that, but maybe it's less. It's interesting because, like, I guess presumably he will wake up. Presumably, like, there will be some kind of contact with this other Twin Peaks that we're we are desperately searching for, or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I wonder if there's a way that you're right, but that it's not so. Um, yeah like maybe it's not so um critical but maybe that's actually is like the experience you're being given and i think eventually my sense is that somehow that will be i mean we get it in bits but i i don't think we're gonna get like the thing we're really hoping for but i think um i think i think something something will come
1: yeah that that makes sense to me um The the other sequence that I thought was worth bringing up here because it it takes up a fair amount of time in the episode and is an unusual sequence for any number of reasons is the sequence with the three cops that we get up and we get an extended sequence with detectives uh, Fusco in the opening of the episode where the three of them are sort of talking amongst themselves uh, largely about kind of nothing. And then, then there's a bit of an engagement with like Dougie and stuff. And then like the spike stuff follows it. And the Ike the spike sequence is um, oddly uh, scored with music from fire walk with me. But anyway, but the cop sequence I thought was interesting because it plays into this larger thing that seems to be so present in the episode, which is again, a very like drawing out of sort of um, sequences that have no plot relevance really Uh, but are are, are, like there's a lot of kind of aesthetic work going into these sequences like for example I'm not sure if people picked up on this but the scene where the cops are just sort of laughing about a joke that we're not given access to, which uh, in and of itself calls back to earlier episodes with the Horn brothers, where the Horn brothers are laughing maniacally about jokes that we don't understand what they're talking about. So the cops are doing this, and the camera, like, there's, like, this very distinct visual choreography where the camera moves across them from left to right, and you get all three brothers. And then a split second later, it does exactly the same thing, and it moves across them again, and it just sort of this kind of odd stuff where there's so much energy putting it being put into these scenes that don't that don't have much narrative weight and it is almost pointing out again our desire to like find narrative weight in everything Um, like as another example of this the character of Bushnell who is Dougie's boss uh, is standing in front of these three detectives early in the scene and is um, you know talking to them and then at one point just sort of there's no dialogue and he just makes this sort of series of odd gestures he's like he's making a fist he has a sour face he has his hand in his pocket and you know you could either read that and just be like there's something odd going on here that I don't understand or you could be Twin Peaks fans and read that as like somehow making a reference to uh gordon cole's blue rose code with lil at the beginning of fire walk with me with the fists and so it's this again tension between like is there meaning here or is there not is it stagnant space is it coded space it's all these kinds of questions right
0: so what else from this episode do we feel the need to, i mean the i just i don't have much to add to that except to say that the the stuff with the detectives was um hilarious I don't have a lot to say except yes. I also I made the connection to Firewalk with me, but don't know what else to add to that. Um, yeah, was there anything else from the episode that we um, people people at home can't necessarily hear this? But we've been having like massive recording upheaval today, so I, I'm I'm sort of eager to to wrap this up. If there's anything else, any other burning burning concerns we want to bring up
1: let's do the evil coop message first because i have things i want to say about the roadhouse scene because i found it to be like a fascinating scene but um but the evil coop message thing so uh for people who don't remember you see evil coop early in the episode typing out a message on a phone uh that is the same message later in the episode diane receives a text message um that seems to be the same uh, fans who've been paying very close attention are maybe arguing that these, uh, there's something weird going on in the sense that when Coop typed out the message, it was in lowercase with no punctuation. When Diane receives the message, it's all in uppercase with punctuation. And people are saying, like, well, did it go through the box in Argentina? Was it forwarded by somebody else? Like, it, you know, these kinds of questions. It could just be sloppiness on the part of the creators. Like, who knows?
0: Is Cooper actually Film Crit Hulk? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe he has just something set up so that all of his outgoing messages do that. Um, I also was like, this guy can like manipulate surveillance equipment and like do crazy things. I was like, he probably can send a message out of one crappy phone and have it appear differently in a different phone later. It's probably within his power. But um, I, the, the, the more interesting question there, and the thing everybody is supposed to sort of be asking themselves at the end of that encounter is... And it seems to be what everybody is saying is like, oh, Diane is maybe in cahoots with evil Cooper. I didn't have that reaction at all. And I and I don't really think it's like the most obvious or like necessary reaction to that scene. It seems to me that this could very much just be Cooper messing with Diane because it seems like he gets very much pleasure out of sort of messing with these people that were close to Cooper. Um, there's no indication necessarily that she knows who this is you know people were saying well i thought he was gonna i thought diane was gonna reference the message when she t- i think you said that earlier just when she talks to cole um but you know if you just got some random message on your phone from like some yank which pe- which happens to people i you know it makes perfect sense to me that like she wouldn't mention this to anybody you know
2: well it's interesting though because she is like checking her phone when she's in the air and she like can't um that's true she can't check it but then i mean i agree with you actually like i didn't think that she was in cahoots with him but i i i wondered if she would know who sent it i was interested in why she didn't mention it um you know it does come from unknown but um yeah like i guess to me the idea that she would be in cahoots with evil cooper to me doesn't make sense based on their previous encounter and like yeah um yeah like that that to me doesn't hold much but who knows i guess
1: did you have anything you wanted to say about that Simon, or should we go to the uh the roadhouse scene at the end
0: no i wanted to talk about the roadhouse sequence um i mean i i have no idea what to make of it any more than anyone else does um to me this scene and the johnny horn scene were the most sort of like I I throw my hands up and don't know what to do with it. My my biggest fear about the Johnny Horn sequence is that it's just a plot device to get Audrey in town.
1: That was what Audrey, or that's what Olivia. His surmise was that this will be like a funeral for Johnny for Johnny Horn, and that will be the thing that brings back Audrey. Which which I think makes perfect sense. I mean, it doesn't bother me that much really. But but you find it you find it a bit too overdetermined or something.
0: Yeah, I mean, just to have that character just be. I mean, I guess it was he was never much of a character anyway. But like. I don't know, just to, to sacrifice like a recurring character in one scene as just like but anyway, this is all this is all just um you know, speculation anyway. Um the the Roadhouse scene yeah, I don't know what to make of that either. That's Sky Ferrero with the rash. Uh if you don't know who she is, she's sort of like an alt pop singer. Um, she's also done some acting recently, like she was in, um, Eli Roth's The Green Inferno.
1: She was in Matthew, Matthew Porterfield's film Putty Hill, which is this like very kind of like no budget sort of indie film. Uh, she seems to be working with interesting people. You am to give her credit for that. But anyway, yeah.
0: Yeah. Kind of an interesting figure. Um, <laughs> no, I'm totally lost with The Rash. I don't know what to say about that. Um, Sometimes you just get a rash.
1: <laughs> I have a couple of things. I mean, I think the first one is like some somebody else pointed this out uh, online and I, it did not occur to me when watching it. And I'm not sure I entirely buy this, but somebody pointed out oh, that there might be like a plot connection in the sense that um, – the, the Sky Ferreira character talks about not remembering what happened and why she lost her job, uh, and, and which could, of course, be drug use. But this person was like, well, maybe this links up to things like Bill Hastings not being able to remember and like these kinds of, you know, like the, the Bob-esque claims around people not being able to remember. And I was like, maybe, maybe that's what's going on. Um, but for me, the, at the more general level, I think there was some interesting stuff going on with that sequence. Uh, there's two things there. The first one, I would say, this occurred to me while I was trying to finish my piece on Part 8 of Twin Peaks for CinemaScope, which I have now sent off to my editor, and, and we'll see how that goes. The, it, the piece became a bit unwieldy, so I don't know. But at some point, I was writing about uh, something I mentioned in last the last uh, podcast we did about Part 8, which was where I was talking about this idea that, like, You know, there's something to the, the woodsman's, uh, blackened bodies and this question of kind of like indistinguishability, the way that characters are sort of, um, already treated as indistinguishable from each other in this figuration of like the blackness of the bodies and like this idea that there there maybe is an awareness on the part of the show that this is a kind of like precondition for the form of violence that is done to these bodies where they're already being treated as like indistinguishable and they don't matter uh this kind of thing and I was thinking about it after that and I actually think there's something really interesting going on with the way that Lynch has been basically using female characters in the background to kind of signify the opioid crisis and like the drug crisis uh, in the United States and and Canada as well. But it's particularly bad in the United States because the United States uh, has not, as a country, understood the value of harm reduction as an approach to drug crisis management. That is my soapbox. I will now get back off of it. But anyway, um, so I, I do think there's something interesting there in the sense that the way that these women turn up throughout the series is they sort of come in for one sequence where they're given a lot of like, um, episode weight, like we spend time with them, but they're not given any narrative weight. They're not given sort of like agency necessarily, uh, or names even, but it's very clear that they're sort of like suffering from drug use or, or something. Uh, I mean, the Shelley Shelly Johnson character is a bit of an exception to that, but I guess we're going to have to wait to see where that goes with her to know how she fits into this. Um, but anyway, we have this sort of parade of women who are coming in this way. And I also think there's something interesting there in terms of this idea of this sort of indistinguishability it's just these characters that we're like made to spend time with that are not particularly like clear to us who they are and I, for me there's something interesting going on there with Lynch's like pointing out to us that we're, we're very quick to want to just get past these figures that like that they are, that in the way traditional television works they are they are lower on the hierarchy of like what matters and so there's almost a way in which he's thematizing like how, how the drug crisis is playing out in reality with these people being ignored and these bodies being ignored and treated as if they don't matter and they're indistinguishable. And I I think there's something really interesting with that that I really like. Um, I think that it's doubled down on by just how uncomfortable that scene is. Like watching her scratch her armpit, it was like one of the more unpleasant experiences like in the show so far. Um, There's something to that. The other and the last thing I would say about those sequences, uh, particularly the one in the roadhouse, is for me... It it called up something that I I haven't heard people talking about in relation to the new Twin Peaks so much, and maybe that's because it hasn't been so present in The Return, but is pretty present in Lynch's, particularly Lynch's later filmmaking, um, is this idea that he actually has a real affinity for, like, creating scenes where women are given sort of these like private encounters among each other, like where, where women have these sort of spaces where they're talking about things that the audience doesn't necessarily know about. They're often this things that the women are talking about are not necessarily like, what we're used to seeing women talk about when they are given space in moving image narratives, which is either men traditionally, or, you know, um, other things that are related to the narrative in things like Inland Empire, Mulholland drive here. It's, it's like, again, the sort of revet thing of women being given space to talk about like, I don't know, just unpleasant things in their lives, things that they're struggling with. Like, um, I don't know, their their loves, their hates, their joys. Like, I, I don't know. I think there's something very interesting going on with all of that.
0: And here I was thinking it was just a chick with a rash.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. Well, I think
2: what you're saying, Kate, actually makes a lot of sense because what I started thinking about was the... The woman who has the kid um, who is sort yes. of playing around um, Dougie's car before it gets blown up. I mean, that's she's like a really disturbing figure, like especially mm-hmm. because of this kid who's hanging around her.
0: It's bizarre and also interesting to me that the actress who plays um, sort of the the drugged out mom is one of the three or four people who was interviewed by like Vanity Fair or something. Really? Um, when yeah, like it was her and. Um, and Naomi Watts and Laura Dern talking about like the new season and like working with Lynch and all she could really talk about was, yeah, I had a table. It was dirty. (laughs) It was really, it was really mostly what she talked about was the table. And that was maybe a hint that she wasn't going to get that much to do, but maybe it's also a hint she'll get more to do later. I don't know. Anyway, uh, we should probably think about wrapping up any quick uh, closing thoughts or arguments anyone wants to throw out there.
1: I think I have said what I have to say about this episode. Uh, I was super happy to have Jessica back on. And uh, I'm looking forward to digging into the last, what do we have left, nine episodes now? Yeah. Yep. Well, thanks for having me. All right.
0: And And uh, thank y'all for listening. Uh, again, feel free to rate and review the show on iTunes and or Stitcher. I don't think we have any ratings on Stitcher yet. And I know people are listening there um and uh yeah we're also on SoundCloud just google the uh SoundCloud page for Sorted Cinema you'll find us there and we will be back in uh, hopefully significantly less than a week thank y'all for
1: listening